right. Lord willing, we're going to finish John chapter 2, looking at verses 12 through 29. So uh, we're picking up in verse 18, little children, it is the last time. And as you've heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, plural, whereby we know it is the last time. And as you see by the parentheses I put there, the word there is ora in the Greek, and it means our. Uh, it's a primary word, and it, it's used to designate a specific period of time, uh, literally or figurative period of time. It's not, it is literally an hour, but it can also be used to be a day or a season or a tide, a change of tides, or just a period of time. Now, this is the only place in the Bible this particular phrase is used. <clears throat> Excuse me, but the word hour often was used by the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, you'll see in this phrase when he was talking to the woman at the well, a woman, believe me, the hour cometh when, shall, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You, you know why that one came to mind, because we just saw that on the chosen. Uh, but you see here the hour is talking about a change in the relationship of humanity to God. Uh, he uses the word again uh, when he's talking to the Jews, when he says, verily, verily, Jesus again speaking, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. So in both of these instances, hour here is used as a, 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 a title change, uh, an epic change in uh, the relationship of people to God or mankind to God. Uh, John is saying in this verse 18, a new era has dawned. With the arrival and, of course, execution of the Christ, a new era has begun. But this time is different in that he qualifies it in saying this is the last hour. This is the last period of time that the earth will see. Now, if, if, if you're like I am, you're a dispensationalist, you see these different periods of time, uh, the plan of salvation not changing from beginning to end, but God working with mankind in different ways. And this is the last, I hate to use the word dispensation, it makes too many people angry, but this is the last period that God is going to be dealing with us. Uh, now, it's been um, 2,000 years, and skeptics will say, well, well why is that? Uh, why is there no return if this is the last hour? But Jesus warned us in the parable of the vineyard that it would be a long time before the sun returned. After a long time, he said, after a long time. Nobody picks up on that, but the fact was, while we know that Jesus could come at any moment, we do know that he predicted that it would be a long time. You know, Peter tells us that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. So time is different for God than it is for us. And at the same time, Peter encourages us by saying God is not slack to us. We're not willing that any should perish. So if you're wondering why he's delaying, he's delaying waiting for the ones that he hopes to be saved to be saved. He's waiting. If he's waiting on you, don't stall any longer. Make your commitment to Christ and let's get out of here. The last hour is a kind of time, a period of time, a segment of time. It's not a measure of 60 minutes or duration. One of the characteristics of this word aura is it often describes a crisis. It's a time of stress, like labor pains are a time of stress, and they're going to get worse and worse as the time approaches. Uh, do I have this here? 
Uh, we're, we've been told that from the time of the Lord Jesus Christ and Paul walked the earth until present, that things are going to get more and more difficult, more and more anxious, and things are going to get worse. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. You know, we, uh, we often get upset with people who lie to us in politics, but the truth is they are the victims of their lies as well. And we have to keep that in mind. You know, many antichrists, uh, John said, are already there. We, you know, when we think of antichrist, we think of, uh, we think of the antichrist. We think of that uh, end of time world leader that's eventually at midpoint of the tribulation period that we call the tribulation. Uh, the midpoint uh, will be indwelt personally by Satan. We think of the antichrist, but John is saying, no, there is a spirit of antichrist in the world. There's an anti-God spirit in the world and it is the world system, as we talked about last week. There are also false teachers who deny many of the truths about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a question about how many you need to deny to become a heretic, you know, of the truths of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are false teachers that will find fault with many things that the Bible teaches. And finally, of course, is that devil incarnate end time world leader that we think of as the Antichrist. The point is, these days ahead, from John's day forward, have been and will continue to be dangerous times. It's a time of form religion. 2 Timothy 3.5 says, having a form of godliness, but denying the power of the King James reads. The word is exousia in the Greek, the authority. So these are, these are quote-unquote Christian, do I use a little c? I don't know. These are fake Christian leaders that have the outward form of Christianity, but they deny the authority of God in their lives. Paul also tells us it will be a time of head religion in 2 Timothy 3.7, that these men would always be learning, but they somehow never come to the knowledge of the truth. They, they studied the Bible, but they don't get it. And finally, Paul tells us it'll be a godless religion in verse 8. 2 Timothy 3.8, he says, these are men of corrupt minds, reprobate to the faith. Uh, dangerous days. The true Christians are cautioned here by Paul. To, Tim to Timothy in 3.10, you've known, my full, full, you've known my doctrine, fully hold on to it, he tells them. He also tells Timothy in verse 12 of chapter 3 that all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You know, I read a thing, somebody put a post up on uh, Facebook about Corey Ten Boom's letter about the tribulation and how she thought it was unfair that we think we're going to escape through a rapture that uh, really fully two-thirds of the world was already in tribulation, she wrote. She died, uh, had to be 20, 25 years ago now. Uh, she said, what we need to do as pastors, speaking to the leaders of Africa, South Africa, 25 years ago, she said, what we need to do is prepare our people for tribulation. Prepare our people for difficult times, hard times. Well, I don't believe the church will go through the tribulation. I don't. But I do believe that hard times will continue to get worse and worse. And I don't think it's going to get any easier. So I think we have to steel ourselves for the possibility that we're going to face difficult times. You know. Now, how do we recognize this anti-God spirit, this, this anti-Christ? How do we do that? Uh, John, in verse 19, writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. True Christians have a desire to be with the people of God. By this, Jesus said, shall all men know you are my disciples by your love for one another. We share four truths that bind us together in the faith. 
I should have said five because I typed it wrong, but let's stick with four. The first thing we share together is we believe that Jesus is God and has come in the flesh. Secondly, we believe that the Bible is true. Now, you know, your real theologians would say without any mixture of error, and I would attest to that, it's true without any mixture of error. Well, that gets you in trouble with a lot of Christians. Another thing Christians believe is that sin separates us from God. So we don't practice sin because sin breaks our relationship with God. And finally, fourth and fifth, if you don't mind, Jesus died for our sins. He died for my sins. When he died on that cross, I died with him. And when he rose from that grave, I rose with him. So he died for my sins and he rose for my justification. And when that's true for you, that makes you my brother or my sister in Christ. That's what Christians believe. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. It's as simple as that. You know, the lost aren't like that. The lost are not so. These who John is depicting as antichrists with a small a and a small c are always dissatisfied with the brethren. They don't love the brethren. They criticize, they pick on, and they condemn the sheep. It's interesting to me how they're interested in dividing the flock. They're not interested in building the flock, and they're not interested in reaching wolves. They're interested only in criticizing and dividing the flock. They despise correction. If you want to find out if you're talking to a genuine Christian or a fake Christian, gently remind them of something they've done wrong. You'll find out how they react, and that'll tell you something. See, if they bite your head off, you'll know. Sheep don't bite heads off. See? These, these antichrists despise correction. They resist the truth. You share the scriptures with them and they'll argue with you. And finally, in the end, they depart the fellowship. If you tell them the truth long enough, they can't stand it and they'll leave. That's the proof of an antichrist. They leave. Now, I've moved verse 20, uh, what do I have here, 20 and 21 later to make a better list. Um, sort of a listing sermon today, I'm sorry. Uh, so I've skipped up to verse 22. Who is a liar? Still on the theme of the Antichrist. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. And verse 23. Whosoever denies the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledges the Son hath the Father also. The central doctrine of the Bible, cover to cover, is the deity of Christ. You can't be a Christian without holding to the deity of of Christ. This is the one great theme of the Bible that God Himself took on human form and died in our place. This is the gospel, the good news. It's the basis of our salvation. It's the foundation of our fellowship, our relationship together as a church. And it is our only hope for the future. It is the very heart of the gospel. My favorite verse is verse uh, 21 in 2 Corinthians for He, which is God the Father, he, God, hath made him Jesus. So just to get sure that he and the hymns are. For he, God the Father, had made him Jesus the Son to be sin for us. Jesus became sin in our place. Who, Jesus, knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He took my sin to that cross and he attributed his righteousness to me. And I love to say this and I say it over and over that you... As a believer, blood-washed Christian, are as welcome in the throne room of God itself as is the Son. You are as welcome there as the Son. 
You don't need to cower in fear. You don't need to be afraid. In fact, later on, he's going to say, we have this confidence, this confidence that when we see him, we shall be like him. It's the central theme of the Bible. Dr. Beeman was uh, the chair of Greek something theology at one of the schools that I went to, Roy Beeman. And he, he said this, which I thought was unusual. He said, if there's any point in the Bible where you begin to doubt it and you begin to reject, pick, pick a truth. It doesn't matter which one it is. Pick any truth. As you begin to find fault in God's word, you will always end up, if you're consistent, consistent. Most people aren't consistent in their Bible study, but if you're consistent, you will always end up denying the deity of Christ. And I've often thought that was an interesting point. So when you, when you find yourself doubting certain things in the Bible, go back and see what Jesus said about them. And most of the time you will find that Jesus himself or the Holy Spirit has gone to great lengths to cover every doubt you'll ever have. Old Testament miracles and stories will be substantiated in the New Testament. New Testament facts that are taught will be substantiated in the Old Testament. It's there. You just have to look. That's the point. Christ rejectors are not like that. While they claim to confess Christ with their mouth, their lives don't follow his leadership. And that's what Jesus said. Why would you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? One of the characteristics of a true Christian, which we're going to spend some time in here, is that they do what Jesus says. Now we're back in John, First uh, John. These things I've written to you. Do I have it? Yeah, these things I've written to you concerning them that seduce you. While these worldly, if you don't mind me saying it that way, antichrists attempt to deceive you, they're the faithful, they're always subtle about this. They're quietly questioning. They're not openly proclaiming, especially in a congregation of believers. They're behind the scenes. They're in the back of the church. They're mumbling to someone. They're saying under their breath things. They're wondering aloud, well, I wonder about this. I really don't understand this. They're secretly denying the truth, but they're not publicly doing it because they know they'd be rebuked. And if they wouldn't stop, they know they'd be asked to leave. Notice, too, that they go after the sheep. They sit with the sheep, they deceive the sheep, and they destroy the sheep. Jesus said this. He said, the thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. Understand this, the entire world system that we talked about last week, is set up specifically to destroy you, to destroy your families, to destroy your communities, to destroy your society, destroy your country, and to destroy your world. That's Satan's purpose. Why it is, I couldn't begin to explain it, but I can tell you this, that if you follow what the world is teaching you, you will be destroyed. That's what the scripture teaches us, you know. They're also counterfeits. They're counterfeit ministers. I'm deciding whether I want to skip up ahead. Uh, there are counterfeit ministers. 2 Corinthians 11 and 13 said, Such are false apostles, Paul writes. Deceitful workers, turning themselves, turning themselves into the apostle of Christ. The word apostle means one sent forth with authority. They're sending themselves forth with authority. I always laugh at some of these guys that call themselves the apostle Bob or, you know, uh, the apostolic calling that have called themselves to the apostleship. It's... It's kind of comical if it isn't so sad with the number of people that follow them. There's also a counterfeit gospel that Paul writes about. I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that is called into the grace of Christ and do another gospel 
which is not another. And then he goes on. I should have put dot, dot, dot after that. There's, there's a counterfeit ministers out there. There's a counterfeit gospel. And there are counterfeit Christians. Oh, I don't have that, do I? No. Jesus said to the Jews, you are of your father, the devil. Often these, these ministers, these Christian in small c, in quotes, teachers, will want everyone to look alike. And to me, that's kind of a red flag. When everyone's goal in the church is conformity, it makes me worry. True Christians are transformed. In fact, we're commanded in Romans 12, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what, what the world is attempting to do is to outwardly change us into their image of what a Christian might want to look like, whereas God's role is to start on the inside and turn you into a, a I don't want to say a copy, turn you into an image, maybe that's a good word, of the Lord Jesus Himself. He wants to form Christ in your innermost being, and He may not deal with the outward things right away. He might, he might wait a while for some of those things. I, I've used this too many times in this church, uh, but I, I suppose it's necessary. I had long hair, and I was going in the ministry, and I was in a conservative Baptist church, and I was going to an independent Baptist church, and somehow I, I didn't think shoulder-length hair was appropriate. And I, I remember I went up the stairs one day, and the deacons all standing out in front of the church said to me one day, they said, boy, and I was young, Boy, when are you going to cut your hair? And my typical, you know, brand new Christian talk back to the elder attitude was, I'll cut my hair when God tells me to cut my hair. Thank you very much. You know, and uh, I don't remember what they said, but they didn't appreciate the comment. Uh, but then two weeks or three weeks later, I was driving down the road, and God literally told me to cut my hair. And I thought, wow, are you kidding and, and this is in my heart. I didn't hear a voice. And he said, no, it's time. Well, I was getting ready to go to Tennessee Temple. I knew I had to cut my hair. I mean, come on, you can't go to Tennessee Temple with shoulder-length hair. It just doesn't happen. And uh, they'd have probably hung me down there. Uh, and I said, okay, I will. And he said, look, there's a barbershop. <laughs> oh, what a convenience right there, right there in my hometown. I didn't know there was a barbershop in the town. There was, there's only two stores in the town that I live in called Hillsboro, Maryland. We had a hill and about eight houses, and it was a town. Uh, but we did have a general store, and we had a barbershop. I didn't realize that at the other end of town. And I stopped, and I went in, and I sat down, and there, there, there's a whole row of chairs, a whole bunch of people waiting to get their hair cut, and I sat down there. And I hadn't cut my hair since I left the military, and I was looking around, and there was all these pictures of Marines that had their heads shaved. And I thought, oh, my God, this guy's a retired Marine barber. You know, you've got to be kidding me. You know, and I thought, well, at least there's eight or nine people in front of me. And I sat there a while thinking, maybe if nobody's looking, I'll just sneak out the door. And the guy points his comb at me and he goes, you're next. I said, oh, no, all these guys, they all said, oh, no, go ahead. We want to watch. (laughs) So I went from shoulder length to fuzz. Um, He only knew how to cut hair one time. But the point is that I'm attempting to make is do not let people tell you who you need to be or where you need to be or how you need to be. What you need to cultivate is the ability to hear that inner voice of the Holy Spirit in you saying, now is the time, this is where you need to be, stop here, talk to this person, do this, don't do that. You need to cultivate that voice and you're going to make some mistakes about it. 
You're not going to do it all perfectly, but you need to cultivate that boy's voice. And as long as you're listening to people on the outside trying to conform you to their image of what a Christian should look like, you'll never be able to hear that inner voice. This is the point. And the solution to the problem of false Christians is to be able to hear that inner voice. Your communion with the Holy Spirit who dwells in your soul, that communion is your key to safety. See, the solution to the problem of false Christians is the indwelling Holy Spirit. His inner leadership in your innermost person will help you distinguish true from false. This is the point. So I have here, I, I pulled some of those verses out of order. You notice I skipped them. I'm coming back to them now. Uh, there are six marks of a true believer. Um, and, oh yeah, that's I should have pulled that down a little bit further. I wasn't sure that would show up well. So really, uh, I'm not going to comment on this too much other than what John really has written, and that is true believers are indwelled by the spirit of truth. And they know it. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. Now the word there, actually, all things, should probably be all. Uh, it, it depends on whether there's just one letter in the Greek, and there's some discussion amongst uh, different versions of the text about whether the word is panta or pantes. Uh, so all is okay, all things is okay. If you have a New International Version, it probably says you know all. You know? The point is, you know everything you need to know. If you're not sure, ask. Lord, what am I supposed to do now? Lord, what is this guy? Lord, can I trust him? I have not written unto you, John writes, because you know not the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Your first line of defense against this force of Antichrist, this evil that has been working in the world since the fall of man, actually before the fall of man, your first line of defense is the Holy Spirit in your heart. Secondly, believers are constantly being taught by God. Whereas I'm up here talking at you, I really hope you're not hearing me. I hope you're hearing him. And I hope he's highlighting the things that matter to you. I often go into church services and I listen to others and I, I say, Lord, please have something there for me. And I listen for what the Holy Spirit's saying for me. Most of us preachers go on and on and on and never say much, but sometimes the Holy Spirit can use our words to speak to you, and that's the goal. The true believers are constantly being taught by God. The anointing which you have received of Him abides in you, and you don't need that any man teach you. You take your Bible and the Holy Spirit and go sit down in a quiet spot and ask Him the question. Just ask Him the question. Now, you know, somebody told me years ago you should write the question down. I'm not that organized. But if you write the question down and date it, it's always interesting because you can go back and then write down what the answer was and the date that he answered it. And you'll find he very quickly responds to many of those questions. Sometimes he leaves them hanging in the air for a while, but a lot of times if you get a three-ring binder or a spiral-bound notebook and write down your question and put the date beside it and wait and see when that answer comes, he'll answer it for you. It's amazing how that has. You have you have no need that anyone teach you, any man teach you, but the same anointing which teacheth you of all things, and it's truth and it's not a lie, and even as he hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. True believers, number three, hold on to Jesus. I didn't want to use the word abide again. Let that therefore abide in you. You know the word abide, <laughs> brand new Christian, I made a list of these ten things I needed to do to abide. Well, as soon as you start to do number one, you've stopped abiding. 
because abide means to remain where you are. I was in a simple faith relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and I didn't need to make up my own set of Ten Commandments to be able to abide. I just was supposed to stay in simple faith relationship with Jesus. Just keep trusting Him. You wake up in the morning and you say, what are we going to do today, Lord? Thank you for another day. Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning, John writes. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. Fourth, true believers keep their eyes on the prize, and the prize is eternal life. You know, we get sidetracked so often, so easily into other things. I can, I can really get wound up in my boat from time to time, and I have to be careful. The prize is not a sailboat. The prize is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the promise that He hath promised us, even eternal life. Fifth, John said, true believers are looking forward to the second coming of Christ. And they're doing so with confidence. I've already mentioned this. And now, little children, abide in Him. Stay where you're at. Little babes in Christ. Don't expect to be more. Just be who you are in Christ. Abide in Him that when He shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. And finally, John writes, true believers' lives begin to manifest His righteousness. What happens is the Holy Spirit is beginning to develop the character of Christ in your heart. As a new believer, you see this start to happen almost immediately. And if you don't, I would question it. What you should start to notice is an occasional rebuke, saying, no, don't do that. And you say, of course not. I will stop immediately. I'm sorry. You know, what do you do when you fail? Well, we know John's already told us in chapter 1. Confess your sins, because He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So as soon as you find yourself failing, confess that sin. Lord, I'm sorry. I did this or I did that. I'm sorry. I apologize. Help me not to do it again. We know that what, Christ, what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives is creating in us the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's happening. You say, well, why is this happening? He's creating the character of of the Lord Jesus Christ. So whatever's going on in your life today, He's creating the character, the faith, the courage, the patience, the fortitude of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. That's what He's doing. He's developing Christ in you. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of Him. So the question is, did you get the real thing when you came to Christ? And that's how I'm going to end this message. Did you get the real thing? Do you hear His voice teaching you? Down in your soul, do you hear His voice? Do you find yourself in a position of resting in Christ? I love the phrase, uh, Norman Grubb, I think was the one that came up with it, is I can't, but He can. You know, it's a confidence in Christ that whatever calls you to, you know that on your own you can't do it. But the confidence is that if He's called me to it, in Christ I can. Do you find yourself in that position of faith confidence? Third, do you look forward to the promise of heaven? Is that something that's even appealing to you? I remember I shared this with my sister years, years and years ago uh, about the, the rapture of the church and the tribulation and heaven. And she started crying. I thought, what did I say? You know, we're like Tweedledee and Tweedledum. You know, we're just so opposite from each other. I said, what's the matter? I want to see my children grow up. I thought, well, I never thought of that. You, know, you want to see your children grow up? Well, they'll be grown up. She said, no, I want to see them grow up. I don't know what to say about that. 
Needless to say, she was no fan of the rapture 40 years ago. Now I think she's, she'd be happy to. You know. Are you confident about the meeting, about meeting Jesus one day? Are you confident about that? That one day you'll stand in His presence? Do you have peace about that fact? John says the true believers have peace about that fact. That although we're not worthy, because of Him, we are. And finally, does your life reflect the life of Christ in you? Have you seen the Holy Spirit moving in your life? Have you seen those changes start to occur? If not, I would counsel you at any time, whether it were now or ten years from now, to bow your head and make sure it's real. Make sure that what you got that first time you prayed to receive Christ was a real thing. Make sure you have that indwelling Holy Spirit. Make sure you have that confidence. Make sure you see the Holy Spirit producing Christ in you. Make sure you're looking forward to heaven. Make sure these things are true for you because this is what John says will protect us from the evil of the world. Let's pray. Father, my hope is that there's no one here today that has not received Christ as their Savior, has not bowed their hearts to you, Father. I pray that everyone here has confessed their sin to you, admitted that they were failures, and asked you to come into their life and save them. This is my hope, Father that no one would leave this room without knowing Christ as their personal Savior. And I ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.